Hello everyone and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel and I've led sales at multiple companies, twice as CEO, twice as head of sales, and always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Currently, I lead sales at self-driving delivery car company Udell. I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. Our guest today is Cartel Kelly. Cartel started selling pharmaceuticals, one of the largest, most interesting field sales machines in the world. He moved into tech sales shortly thereafter, and as the first hire at Lead Genius, he grew into head of sales, and more recently as director of sales development at Zenefits, where he hired dozens of sales reps for his teams. Throughout, he has been a mentor at famed Accelerator 500 Startups, teaching hundreds of founders all about early stage sales. Cart and I spent a lot of time on specific stories and strategies that he implemented before we really take things to a higher level, so it was really great to get into the nitty gritty and the details, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Cartel Kelly. Cart, welcome to the gong. Good to see you. Uh, good to see you, good to be here in this beautiful room, these cozy chairs. Uh, I wanted to start by asking what you learned from one of the largest sales organizations movements in the history of commercial capitalism, the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, what I learned, that was my first experience uh, in sales, a company called Smith and Nephew. Uh, And so uh, it was a great uh, training program. That's one of the reasons that I chose it. And then uh, so one of the things I learned from the individual who ran the program, uh, and I say it to a lot of people on my team, uh, is just in terms of a sales motion to quote unquote, never call the baby ugly, which essentially means if somebody's using a particular product or they already have a solution in place that you're selling against, some folks uh, will kind of attack that and point to all the flaws. Uh, but it was something that within the medical device field, especially with being younger and selling into uh, guys that have been practicing for 30 years or so, uh, making sure that you weren't uh, kind of talking poorly upon the way that they do things. Uh, and so learning that early on is definitely something that uh, I, I took away with me. So now when you're on all these, now later on selling for the last decade of your career at larger tech companies and and all that, we're disrupting everything, we're changing the way the world's work. How do you have conversations with clients and with prospects about the, uh, perhaps their baby's not ugly, but perhaps it's a little out of style? Yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a fine line and just a gentle approach, taking more of a consultative sale. So if somebody's using something, uh, like when I was at Lead Genius, if they were using another data vendor, uh, making sure that, oh, like mentioning it, I'm familiar with that company and I've heard great things, uh, and then kind of slowly uh, leading to, uh, you know, what they're, how they're using it. Uh, are there any pain points that they, that, they, that they have with it? What's their favorite part about it? And ultimately, before getting off that call, if you know the company well, then making sure to kind of equip them with questions to, to ask the vendor. That especially, I found that valuable if they're if you're in a competitive situation and they're they haven't purchased yet. 
Can you tell me a little more about that? How do you try to, perhaps this is the wrong phrasing, but you're not exactly pitting the prospect against their current vendor, but you are asking them to look for holes in their system. How do you, how do you approach that and how do you do so both amicably because you're the one that you want them to trust you and you mm -hmm. want them to know that you've got their best interest no matter where it is, but also it is a little bit competitive and when you're at a startup, likely genius. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of competition. It's it's do or die. So how do you how do you balance that? And perhaps your context would be helpful to know kind of what Lead Genius did. Yeah. So Lead Genius is a B two B business to business uh, data vendor. So essentially, if a company wants to, you're in sales and you want to identify prospects that you're going to go after, uh, getting that prospect's uh, information like an email, the company address. Uh, how many employees they are, what technologies they're using. Uh, all of those data points were things that were curated and that we would provide to each of uh, our clients uh, at Lead Genius. So that's what we did there. And the initial question as far as... Well, give me an example of yourself speaking with a prospect and what they might have been using at the time and how the kinds of questions you would either ask them or tell them to ask their current vendor to understand where the holes are in their current processes. Yeah, so one example might be if we were going against somebody like a Discover Orb, right? Uh, they've changed drastically since, since I was at, at, at Lead Genius, but at the particular time I was there, they, had a, they were very focused on uh, larger, working with larger companies and specifically in uh, the verticals like, uh, like for IT and technology. Uh, so they had a, they did a really good job of kind of mapping the organizations within those verticals. So if I was talking with a particular client that maybe like a Zenefits that was going after more of the SMB space and they were evaluating, they were considering Discover or asking them questions about who their target audience is, what data points are they interested in, in, in gathering, and then, like I mentioned earlier, equipping them with you know, just some questions that, uh, that, that, that other prospects similar to themselves uh, have mentioned and making sure that you get X, Y, and, and Z. What was your typical answer to when a prospect said, well, how are you better than Discover Orb? Or how are you better than other competitors that I'm currently looking at? Because that's a question that's asked very often. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially in a new technology, right? Especially if uh, Fortune 500 is looking at something that's never existed before, something super innovative, and they're trying it out for the first time. So it's virtual reality or self-driving cars or anything, or a new sales tool, a CRM in the cloud that people yeah. have never heard of before. And they're looking at five different options and they say, all right, Carl, tell me, how are you better than, than the rest of the competition? How do you usually go about answering a question like that? So typically at Lead Genius, the case was a lot of people provided basic level data. So when I say basic level, I'm referring to things like the company, the company address, the contact, the title, their email, their phone, like those are all sort of, I view them as table stakes. Um, really what differentiated us was our ability to provide custom data points. And so an example would be like whenever we were working with Indeed, excuse me, they had uh, an enterprise team that, that had been struggling and we're looking at a few different uh, potential data points that might be good indicators of where they should focus their time. And so ultimately having that discussion around 
uh, we landed on, in their case, it was uh, looking at uh, how many job postings a company had on a select number of job boards. Um, that was, they found that by using that, uh, I can't recall exactly, it was something like they were able to increase their win rate on those between something like at least 10%. By using this sort of non-standard non, Yeah, exactly. That's another way of saying it. Non-standard data point, a custom data point. Um, it's really, I, I kind of correlate it to, if you think about uh, having an intimate understanding of your target audience and exactly who you should be going after. And on the flip side, it's like making sure to ignore all of the noise or prospects that uh, would be disqualified potentially after you know several conversations. Gotcha. You at Lead Genius, you spent a few years there, and you very interestingly you started off as an account executive, and then you made your way up to head the sales. What? How did the sales process change for you? Perhaps the general environment around which you were selling over the course of those few years that could be related to your own personal title growth. Well, that could be related to just the market or lead genius's name in the industry. We'd love to kind of understand, you know, for folks who are at early stage startups, what they can expect might change as they grow, both personally, the company itself, the entire environment mm -hmm. uh, within which the company exists. How did you see that happen in your growth from account executive to head of sales at lead genius? Yeah, I mean, there's a, if you're at an early stage startup, uh, a lot of the reasons that people join those is so that they can learn and learn quickly in a fast uh, changing environment. And so on that note, uh, things changed drastically from when I joined as employee seven until, and that was pre-series A, uh, the landscape changed quite a bit because whenever I first joined there, really the only competitors on the market still were like at Dun & Bradstreet, Hoover's, and then over the course of the, a little over four years that I was there, that was right when there was an explosion of technology specific for sales that came onto the market, and along with that were a bunch of other data vendors, so like your Zoom Infos, your Discover Orgs, uh, Data.com, and then a, a plethora of other ones that were just popping up. So it became a much more competitive landscape than it was initially. And uh, internally, some of the changes that we saw, I mean, at first you think if you're on a team of 10 people, uh, a lot of decisions are made quickly. As a group, you can yell across the room to the other person. Uh, you have each other's ear. And then as we raised our Series A, Series B, and started to expand, uh, adjusting to some of the formalities of having a standing, you know, a standing, something as simple as a standing sales meeting or our monthly team huddle would change drastically. Um, you're, when you start at that early of a stage, everything can become a little bit, um, you're involved wearing multiple hats and then kind of coming to terms with, you know, trusting the people that you're, that you're hiring and then bringing it back and focusing on the, the core deliverables of your particular department, in which my case was focusing on, on sales. I want to dive into that management of, of sales reps in a moment, but I'm also curious how the actual sales process changed, perhaps what a conversation was like in the earlier days of Lead Genius when you joined as employee number seven to the later days of Lead Genius a few years later 
when it was already a little more fundraised, uh, some more competitors in the market. Mm-hmm. What what either got easier or got harder about actually making a sale as the company grew? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, in the early day, the early days, it was uh, pretty pretty unstructured. Everybody was. Uh, kind of doing their own thing. We didn't have a formal uh, pitch deck, if you will. Um, and as far as the qualification, uh, we were at that point in time really on the lower end of the market. So working with small, a lot of startups, a lot of SMBs, uh, and it would be pretty straightforward. It was as simple as uh, kind of qualifying what, what their target audience is, who's the particular person that we're talking to, uh, are they the decision maker? It was most often going to be a founder or uh, a VP of sales. Uh, and then we would provide them with a small sample set. We did monthly contracts at that point in time. And, uh, and then we were sending uh, PDFs of, of, of the contracts over. That, that was the, 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 the beginning. Just whatever you had to do to make it quick, make it easy. Yeah, uh, and make it quick, make it easy. The, even the contractual language, like we had lawyers, but in the early days, uh, if somebody you know, came back and wanted to have specific terms, it's something that we'd quickly go over, talk with one of the executives, and then Implement go and make costs. the change on the, the Word doc, convert it to a PDF, and start using that. So that was very different from, from later on. Uh, we, we built the product out a lot further, and then with the market being a lot more competitive, uh, we had to really redesign the whole, like we would do a brief 15-minute uh, discovery initially, and then from there, uh, actually having a formalized uh, demonstration rather than just pitching to, in the early days, it was one person that was making the purchase. Uh, there were a lot of stakeholders and we saw a dramatic shift from it just being the, the uh, VP of sales uh, that was looking to purchase it to we'd have individual contributors coming through. We got and why, did, why did that change? Was it that your product changed and now can fit into a larger enterprise or people got smart? What, what changed? You know, I think it was, it's probably more the latter where, you know, as there is more and more technology available, then individuals are out there thinking about, oh, like there's this data vendor, that data vendor. Oh, my company doesn't necessarily have one in place. Okay, I know that I can go and look at, uh, you know, one of these companies and and purchase leads uh, in a relatively affordable mean to help me achieve my target as an individual salesperson. So uh, there was there was that piece, and then there was also we we saw a lot of marketing uh, folks uh, coming in as well. So VPs of marketing or a CMO. Uh, and so oftentimes we would try to get um, multiple stakeholders, if you will, uh, including that the, the VP of marketing, your VP of sales. And then what we found that was really important to have involved was actually somebody from the operations side of things. So you, be, you yourselves began to identify that you might have an early call with a VP of sales, but you might tell her immediately, hey, we want to speak to your head of operations next because it's going to be him who really begins to implement it, so you were able to guide that original prospect through their buying process a little more professionally? 
Yeah, yeah, to, to guide them through the, the process in a more professional means, but then also to, to, to really ensure that it was gonna be a seamless implementation. A lot of times we would have deals that would be held up because of that person in the operations uh, department. Because they were just booked up and, and couldn't handle it this quarter. Yeah, or they had had a bad experience with a particular vendor, or they didn't want to, they viewed it as a lot of work without understanding the value, and then if they weren't involved in the, the, the process at all, um, it, it could become a challenge. Uh, so those being some of the reasons uh, to, to really focus on having the, the, the operations person involved. Uh, something else that we found was early days we had a lot of churn was a, a problem. We were doing monthly contracts. Uh, the qualification wasn't uh, terribly exhaustive. Uh, and what we found is then even if we met our minimum accuracy guarantees and provided the necessary volume of data that a particular client might want, they would go and they would they'd say that we didn't get any revenue from this. And so by getting that operations person in, what, what that really allowed us to do is further vet what is the current process. Because when you're providing somebody data, uh, you can give them the best data in the world, but if that company that you're selling to doesn't uh, have a defined methodical process of execution or executing on that, on um, working that data, then uh, that's, you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to continue to pay you if they're, they're getting zero dollars at the end of the day. Yeah. So it was a lot of discussions around uh, what is what is the target audience that they're going after? What's the cadence that you're using? Are these going to are these leads going to be worked by your account executives or are they going to be worked by do you have dedicated sales development representatives? What's the number of touches, of emails, uh, calls, that you like? Are they being uh, later on the account-based marketing or account-based sales starting to come up more and more? So then diving into uh, you know what's a nurture strategy? And uh, all of those questions so you are... you really became almost, perhaps consultants is the wrong word here, but you were trusted sales advisors holistically, holistically. to whoever client, whatever client. You weren't just, here's a product, you put in a company, we give you the leads. You began to really look into your client sales process to make sure that they're looking at your product properly. Yeah, exactly. And, and what was really interesting is a lot of times when you're at companies, you'll have your ideal customer profile. Uh, and you, you think about that, uh, and they have certain pain points that you speak to, and your product will have a certain value proposition. But one of the, one of the things that I loved about being, in, in the, the, being at Lead Genius uh, in selling data was everybody's process and the niche that they were going after and how they were going after it was slightly different. And the best reps that we had were really well versed in how things should look at say a one to uh, if you're selling into the SM, SMB a higher velocity versus uh, you're talking to a larger uh, company that's selling a technical solution to IT uh, for larger companies um, how the sales org should be structured uh, and then what were the appropriate means of effectively working a, a given lead, number of touches, number of emails. Um, those things became really important. 
and I think is what allowed us to you know win a lot of the times that we were going up against companies that uh, quite frankly uh, had a had better uh, a better interface if you will as in fancier slick Salesforce integration you can go in and search your leads between things like Lead Genius and Zenefits and then a lot of the work you've done with startups through programs like 500 Startups where you're a mentor. What are some of the common objections that you recommend that either the salespeople or the CEO, whoever's leading the sales for an early stage startup, what are the common objections or types of objections that sales folks at startups get from larger companies? And how do you dig those out? I mean, you mentioned a fantastic one where you think oh, we're selling to the VP of sales, VP of sales will be the person using our product, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it turns out, well, the ops person said no, or the IT person said no, or the finance person said no, and so you begin to try to seek out those other objection givers early on. Yeah. What are some other objections that you saw come out often, and what are some tips or tricks or just questions or parts of your process that you've implemented, either at Zenefits, Lead Genius, or recommended that other startups implement to begin understanding the possible fully exhaustive list of objections that they might be getting and tackling head on? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and so a lot of times, uh, like, there's the initial objection, um, but I will always speak to my teams about making sure to dig deeper. And part of that is understanding what is truly, like, what is that individual's pain point, the individual that you're speaking to, and then how does that fit into the business itself? Because that will stick with Lead Genius a, a lot, almost on every single conversation, people would say, we need a Salesforce integration. It needs to be plug and play, seamlessly integrated. We didn't have that until my halfway through my third year there. Um, and so, that's the initial objection, but oftentimes uh, I found that initial objection is not the, 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 real, the real pain point. Um, so making sure to, to dig deeper um, and if you understand what they're, uh, what they're, what they're looking for, uh, then, then you can sort of position your product accordingly. Uh, if the first thing that they come out the gate and say, uh, like in the example I gave, that they, 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 they need a Salesforce integration, just making sure to follow up and dig deeper and ask questions about. Uh, so great, totally understand that you're looking for a Salesforce integration. Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Just to get some additional detail and context around, is that the real objection that they gave me? Or is that just something, is that a nice to have? So when you would get that objection, somebody would say, well, how's your Salesforce integration? You say non-existent, I'll call you in two years. Or rather, why wouldn't you say I'll call you in two years? Why was that not the end of the conversation? They said they needed a thing, you didn't have the thing? Because ultimately, it was like they would like a Salesforce integration. But once they realized that uh, they were able to get access to data points that weren't readily available, and the data points that, um, that would influence either their conversion rate or their win rate, and allow them and their teams to focus on a particular audience, uh, then that became way more important than having a, a slick Salesforce integration. So in the case of the example of Indeed, 
where being able to increase your team's win rate by five to 10%, uh, that's meaningful. And so would I take, you know, in their case, would they take that versus, or, you know, a slick Salesforce integration, I think, you know, where their decision fell. Which is interesting because it's, um, yeah, oftentimes you'll get those upfront objections or I don't have time or we already have something in place, but it's really about having a conversation with somebody. One of the cool things about starting early as a salesperson at a startup is that there's usually a product already built of some sort, and if not, then it's really exciting because you get to do a lot of asking people questions and then helping build a product. But there usually is some sort of MVP build, you're selling some sort of product, you're getting into certain customers. And so there's two uh, pretty cool things that the pretty cool interactions that the salesperson at a, start, at a startup gets to have with the product team. The first is trying to figure out which market is the best for the product that already exists. Mm-hmm. So for example, you might have built something, and while it's not for the best possible market, there is a market somewhere right. that you need to identify. But the second comes over time. Uh, the second comes, well, hey, turns out 90% of my people are saying Salesforce integration. Uh, it comes in when you say, hey, turns out if you're selling, <laughs> turns out if you're selling self-driving cars for groceries, you need some sort of cooling or temperature control. That's what everybody's saying. But if you sell that same product to a different market, there might be different priorities. For example, when we sell to uh, the auto parts industry, well, temperature requirements aren't there at all. They got to make sure that greasy oil doesn't spill, mm-hmm. right? Probably the same thing for Lead Genius. If you're selling to a developed Fortune 100 that's on Salesforce, fantastic. If you're selling to an SMB that's using um, an Excel spreadsheet as their CRM, it's different. So, how do you think about how the person leading sales at a startup can interact with the product team? Both, in, well, let's start with the latter. How do they interact with the product team as they're getting feedback from the market that they're going after and identifying where the future growth lies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that. That it, it's it's a critical piece of leading a, a sales organization because you have the the team underneath you and you're on the front line so to speak. But all of that feedback that you get, um, make you have to ensure that that's getting back to the product team. So working cross uh, cross functionally, just like you would uh, with a working with your your marketing uh, peers to kind of refine the types of leads that, that you're getting. Um, so like something that it, when I was at Zenefits that we actually did is, is really formalize that uh, structure a little bit within our Salesforce instance. So actually having a product feedback uh, section that was a part of our sales kind of the, the later step, similar to uh, closed loss reasons where uh, it was both for closed loss deals as well as closed one deals. And it was a simple, you know, you pick the, the product feedback yes, then choose, uh, there were uh, some four or five options to start, but it was a pretty lengthy form that they would just quickly go through and say that this person was looking for uh, time and attendance or a particular payroll uh, feature that we didn't have. And then all of that feedback was was uh, easy to aggregate and visible, and it was something that not only the product team looked at, but the executives looked at, marketing looked at, 
uh, became the source of truth, if you will, and the real substance, meat and bones of uh, a recurring meeting with, uh, with, with the sales leadership and, and product on, okay, these are the, this is the product feedback, these are why we're winning, this is why we're losing, and so really making sure that they took that into, into account uh, as they're building out the future roadmap. And then how does that play into focus? And that's probably perhaps a question even in the earlier stages, you know, Zenefit's much larger company, uh, you can sort of productize this, this, mm-hmm. uh, this question asking, this understanding what's missing from the product and begin to send that over to the, the engineering team. But in the early stages where it really is just somebody peeks into your head and says, hey, Carl, uh, peeks into your room and says, hey, Carl, like, yeah. what should we be building? What should we be working on? In many ways, it's up to you to decide what to focus on, where to go, and that should be guided on what you're telling your sales team they should focus on. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about in the early stages focus in terms of forward-looking focus? Well, hey, we're saying, I heard you give a talk before where you talked about total addressable market and, and total target market and really what you're going after and how niche you want to get, how you're dividing your time between your really dream customers versus kind of those a little more on the edge. So how do you think about structuring that focus for your team and also thinking about what you expect from your engineering team, which is also not as large as you want it to be, uh, and that balance. Yeah, that's a, it's a really, I think it's, there's a lot of different variables to take into account uh, when, when thinking about that. So um, one is looking at like really being truthful with yourself as in like, was this particular feature, like, is this a one-off case where some company had some nuanced uh, uh, relegated system in place that led to this particular request? And it may have been a large deal, but how much can you, how repeatable is that particular pain uh, across the spectrum of, of your target audience? Because if, you just go and are really vocal about every single feature that that uh, some customer told you you lost to. Like, it it really makes it difficult to prioritize and and do things that are gonna move the needle for for the group as a whole. If that makes sense, because you you if you can't repeat the the objection across multiple prospects or uh, then, then like it's again, even if it's a large deal, uh, it's difficult to lose. But it's you know it's something that is going to fall lower on the priority list, and maybe be something that you know isn't necessarily uh, communicated. Now, if you're losing uh, deal after deal and conversation after conversation, then uh, then it, it's something that you know you have a discussion with the the VP of product or the executive team. To really start to vet out, okay, like what is on the docket currently? Like this is how we're losing our deals. Um, and the easiest thing that I've always found is like even in an early stage uh, startup, quantifying things with with data. So rather than just saying we lost that one deal and it was worth a hundred k if we had had that and this feature, like making sure to keep track when you're in your one-on-ones doing deal reviews and kind of coming up with your own structure for uh, rating, say, for example, like the top three 
reasons that, that you're losing things. And then quantifying that, just take it times the number of deals that, that your team closed loss over a quarter or a month uh, and the rough, your average contract value. And you go into a conversation and instead of it just being like a reaction to one recently lost deal, you're able to actually go and speak to a larger trend and tie it back to uh, you know a tangible uh, loss opportunity. Yeah, I, I think this point is so important because that's one of the most interesting parts about working at an early stage company is that doing sales at an early stage company is because you really get a voice over what's being built. Everything that's being built needs to be customer led. It can partially, be, it should be vision led, mm-hmm. but it should also be slightly customer led. And it's so easy to make a mistake, especially when you have small data sets about what people are clamoring for. I think you said it really, really well where, hey, if one customer says, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if you had this feature or call me back when you do? You turn around and say, hey, engineering team, build this feature. Well, maybe you got lucky and that yeah. same customer had the same problem as a lot of others. But more than likely, one person just told you something out of whim, you go build it, they're not going to buy it anyway because they were just talking. It's not the real yeah. reason. I'll yeah. give you an example of when I did that poorly and that could hopefully <laughs> give you an opportunity to think for a moment about product feature that you be, that you saw through being built off conversations you had with clients at Lead Genius or at Zenefits. Um, I was working on a delivery company and it was a traditional sort of, we had a two-sided marketplace. We were selling to restaurants and small businesses and we were selling to drivers to get on our platform. Uh, I heard or I had an idea and then I heard it from one driver. That would be fantastic if they could see a live update of all of their earnings in the app. So they had their driver app, kind of like an Uber app. It was around 2013 that we were doing this. And we want to put in live updates of how much money they made, plus we want to gamify the whole thing. So wouldn't it be awesome if a driver logs on and we have to win drivers, right? We're trying to win drivers away from DoorDash and from Uber. Gamify mm-hmm. the whole thing, see the leaderboards, it clears every week, say that, hey, this week if you drive this much, um, you'll win this much and see where all the drivers rank. And our engineers spent, I, I, I had this idea and then heard it from a couple of drivers. Our engineers spent weeks building this thing out it launches, nobody even looks at the page. Uh, Drivers just don't even, they're just trying to get paid to go home. And, mm-hmm. and our target driver actually was not even doing enough hours to really compete. There's a lot of musicians, a lot of students, not full-time people like it is now with Lyft and Uber who are spending four or eight hours a week on it. So that was time poorly spent where we didn't really listen to, I'll call them our customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people we were trying to sell to join our platform. We didn't really listen to them. We just had an idea, heard it validated by one other person, confirmation bias. We spent a lot of time and resources building it, and that was that was a lesson I won't forget, and hopefully have improved now. But it's so easy to do that when you have little data. Yeah, especially like if you're if you're on the front lines and it it's you that lost the deal, and then that last deal causes you to miss your quota. Uh, yeah, you're not initial, having that product the, lost the, you twenty the, grand. Or yeah, something. the the <laughs> initial reaction, and it's just human nature in all of us that is to like focus on that and then like talking about how if we had this one feature like you know we could sell and you're sort of magnifying and amplifying the extent of the problem but just taking time to remember that um, again like is this something that you've seen before can uh, and if you don't have the data yet go and talking speaking with a few additional customers or adding that as a question uh, in, in within the qualification or, or your sales process in order to, to, to sort of validate that like, oh yes, this is a feature that, that um, 
that people in our target audience want uh, or a feature that they would uh, not be willing to not move forward with a purchase if, if, if we don't get this. Uh, time has flown by, Cart, believe it, believe it or not. It has. But it really has. Uh, I want to spend the last few minutes here understanding your thoughts on what's different about doing sales at a startup depending on the size. <laughs> Zenefix was a very different, is a very different company than Lead Genius. Yeah. There are different stages. Zenefix has raised a buttload of a lot more money more. Uh, it is more well known. It is a brand that large companies can trust. Whereas when you were at Lead Genius and when you work with 500 startups, you're working with very early stage companies that trust doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, that two-year plan, three-year plan probably does not exist. Systems certainly do not exist. So when you think about leading a team, uh, I'll ask two questions here. The first is, how do you think about hiring the team? What kinds of individuals are great sales folks in the very smaller companies versus mm -hmm. that a more larger, slightly more established startup like Zenefits? My second question is, how do you guide that team? How do you establish your priorities? How do you speak to them? You were mentioning, um, uh, you know, 15 minute sales check-in meetings. How do you have those conversations in smaller companies versus in larger sales organizations? Yeah, well, step one in a smaller company is recognizing that, that you need to have some structure in place. Um, the, the, one of the things that I learned at, at, at Lead Genius and, and Ryan Williams is the person who kind of really taught me the framework of hiring, the importance of hiring, the importance of the process. That's the one thing that I would say is similar between the two, is even if you're at a startup, it's even more critical. If you're only six people and you're about to hire the seventh person, like your runway to have somebody come in, you all spend you know, months and you're all spending resources of your time to get them up to speed and then they go and walk, like that, that type of impact when you're at an early stage startup, um, is really, really detrimental uh, versus it, it's still painful and costly when you're in a larger company, but the stakes are just, just not, as, not as high. Um, as far as the, the processes are different, um, the, I think the type of people that do really well in startups, like in sales, obviously hard work is a given. Um, you, you have to be a hardworking individual. You have to be coachability is, is critical. Uh, your willingness to learn. The difference between uh, in startups versus a, a larger company is like a larger company, somebody that uh, isn't as proactive, that's looking for uh, more of a, like I don't say for a sales development representative like I don't have a ton of experience and I would like to you know I'm really looking to learn um, like that works better at a larger company where you have a little bit more of an enablement program and onboarding program uh, whereas at a startup somebody that is going to be proactive is is going to be generally a, a lot better because you just don't necessarily you don't have the time to go and uh, have an exhaustive onboarding enablement and uh, career path that you're going to have in somewhere like a, like a Google or a large organization. So those types of folks that are, that are hungry, that are, that are curious and looking at or interested in things beyond 
just their core responsibilities. Does the person's experience level matter to you when you're hiring in the very small or early stages? Uh, or is just that curiosity, that hunger enough? Their, their experience level... Because on the one hand, me, you don't want to waste time and on somebody fully inexperienced teaching them how to have a conversation. Exactly. On the other, somebody very experienced costs you a lot of money. Yeah, and so, I mean, experience for me personally uh, matters a, a, little bit, uh, a little bit more when, when you're in an early stage startup. Because like, if I'm the first uh, sales executive that, that they hired at Lead Genius, and then when we were going to bring on our, our next person, like, we weren't speaking with anybody that, that, that really didn't have sales experience, and inside sales experience was really important. Uh, just because like in my case, I was doing medical devices, field sales, I, was, I had a territory in Western Pennsylvania, and we had to update our CRM once every quarter. Uh, where, and then making that transition to an inside sales model where it's a lot higher volume, like you need to have a process in place. That, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, so we, we identified that and made sure to, to clarify and, and, and refocus our, our profile and who we were interviewing. Gotcha. Cart, this has been a ton of fun. I want to jump for the last little bit here to some rapid fire questions and I wish we could talk for another hour or two. Uh, but so be it. Yeah, so be it. Door here. <laughs> um, so a couple rapid fire questions. I'll ask them quickly. You can take as long as or as short as you want to answer them. You ready? Yep. All right, let's do it. Uh, are there any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you? Any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful to me? Um, so never split the difference. It's not necessarily. Yeah, like. That is, I give that book to every all new hires on my teams, uh, whether you're entry level, have no sales experience, or you're a seasoned executive. Uh, I think there's some valuable takeaways in terms of negotiating, having a conversation, recognizing things like your infle- how you use inflection, how your tone is. Your radio DJ voice. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's definitely a book that, uh, that I really enjoy. That's awesome. Doug Landis actually also recommended that one, so very popular book, ah. apparently. Um, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? So the sale I'm most proud of landing uh, was a, it's a surgeon. It was when I was in medical devices. Uh, his name is Dr. Gruen. Um, and so this, this individual was... Uh, a, a level one trauma surgeon, which all that means is that, like for the really bad cases uh, and complicated fractures, like that's where they send them. Um, and so this individual, uh, he really didn't give me any time of the day. And in fact, when I happened to be in the room for one of the cases, uh, kind of really laid into me and started asking me. Uh, a bunch of a bunch of questions and I didn't questions uh, way above and beyond what they gave us in training like different surgical approaches and and um, and I didn't know them he sort of laughed at me but then uh, being able to then earn his trust over the course of the next 18 months and he didn't do a lot of hip uh, replacements like he would take those on the weekend and then doing that, and it was a complicated procedure, uh, and ended up like fracturing the stem, a spiral down, and kind of guiding him and his staff through what to do. 
um, was the moment that I truly earned his trust and then earned his business. And we still keep in touch to this day. If I have friends that fracture something, like I'll, I'll send it over to him. Send and so that, that for me is definitely one of the most memorable ones because one, it didn't start off great. It wasn't easy. Um, and then two, uh, the way that he interacted with me forced me to step my game up and to a level that was, wasn't really necessary, but was above and beyond. I was a very knowledgeable rep and more knowledgeable than my peers. So then taking those learnings and being able to go and win more and more business. I love that story because it really is all about trust. People yeah. buy from people. Throw whatever trope you want out there, but that, that story covers it all. Yeah. Uh, what is a current startup uh, or a current large tech company that you would have loved being the first sales hire for? Outreach.io. Yeah, tell me about them and why. Um, so they're an email automation uh, platform, uh, primarily for sales, but really they can be used across sales, sales development, uh, account managers. Um, and so I was an early user of, of theirs at Lead Genius and uh, have implemented that uh, at various companies that I've consulted with. And then also uh, we, we implemented that uh, at Zenefits as well. And um, it's a phenomenal company that continues to build. We talked earlier about focus and building the right things. Um, and so they've done a great job of they have a really robust product now, uh, but I could like in the early days, it was a tool that allowed you to sequence prospects and it had templates similar to a Yesware or a Taldap, uh, if anyone's familiar with the, the older tools. And now they've got a dialer functionality, they have a lot of tasks, they have a seamless integration within Salesforce, um, and they continue to do a great job and I think it really makes it it is one of the key tools in a salesperson's uh, arsenal, if you will, um, whether you're using them or a competitor. Uh, so I would have loved to be a sales hire number one there. I love that. Uh, two final questions. One I love to ask is tell me about an early mentor of yours and what you learned from them. Early mentor. Um, so one mentor I was when I was at a uh, lead genius and even earlier than that uh, I was thinking about what should I do where should I go I would overanalyze everything and the one piece of advice that, that he gave me that I'll never forget is he told me to one stop worrying and just make a decision because at the end of the day like you are where you are because of you. And so regardless of the decision that you make, like you will make it right. And, um, and that's something that like, just when he said it to me, uh, it took a while to sink in, but it really is, uh, a lot of times we, we spend reflecting about whether or not you should join a company or whether you should take on the manager role or, uh, that you're on this particular path and, and uh, we're, we're, we're not making any decisions. Uh, and as long as you're not acting, you're, you're stagnant. Yeah, I actually just reached over to pull out this book. Uh, it's called Exhalation by Ted Chang and it's a series of short stories 
recommended by Obama and a bunch of other famous names. And the first story in this book is called The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. And it's a beautiful story that I highly recommend. But the premise of it is, is there's a character in there that's able to go into the future and into the past, see things, interact with things. But no matter what series of decisions he or she makes when he gets to future or past, the time just continues to go as it did anyway. Yeah. You got to where you are based on decisions that you made and you're only going to get to where you're going based on decisions you're going to make. Yep. Indecision is as much of a decision as any other decision. Uh, being able to cope with that challenge is really difficult mm-hmm. for any people. So I love that advice and I also highly recommend this book, uh, Exhalation by Ted Chang. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, check it out. Um, well, where can people learn more about you, uh, what you're doing next, and, and some of the work that you got coming out and, and you're teaching people about? Yeah, so uh, just LinkedIn. Uh, I'm always on LinkedIn, so uh, looking me up there. Uh, I work with, do some work with 500 startups, mentoring. So uh, there, there are some videos there um, that you can check out. And if uh, anybody wants to connect, just uh, shoot me a, a message on LinkedIn uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get together. I, I love nothing more than just talking shop and figuring out, uh, you know, uh, there's a problem that you're having and it's like there's multiple solutions to it but let's talk through different ways of thinking and that's really how i think uh people really progress and move forward awesome car thank you so much thank you i appreciate it well there you have it carthel kelly ladies and gentlemen disparaging your competition ruins trust Never split the difference is a must read. And you should never call the baby ugly. If you want to learn more about Carthel, you can find him on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Carthel Kelly. That's C-A-R-T-H-E-L-E Kelly. If you like the podcast, leave us a review. If you didn't, tweet me at alubarski2 and we'll make it all better. Thanks. Happy selling.